what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast, episode number 49. Tonight we are joined by Courtney Turner from the Courtney Turner podcast for a really important episode. We're going to be talking about NACs, otherwise known as natural asset companies. So what are natural asset companies? Well, natural asset companies, first and foremost, they're being pushed by BlackRock, by the royal families, by the central banksters. And what they're essentially trying to do is to turn nature itself into a new form of asset, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And the way they're going to value this land is based on something that Courtney calls voodoo accounting, where they're going to try and extract value from nature in ways that we've never seen before. So they're going to value things like photosynthesis, clean water, ditches, air quality, carbon sequestration. You might have heard of this already, people buying carbon credits. That's a part of natural asset classes also. Now make no mistake here, this is not about protecting nature. This is about taking back the land and stopping human beings from using it in productive ways. Because once the land is taken and turned into a natural asset class, it can no longer be used by human beings for things like farming. So there goes the food system. Similarly, they are planning to turn national parks into natural asset classes. Now, what does that mean? Well, once you protect these lands, it can actually mean no humans can go there at all because it's protected. And that is the plan. They want to protect 30% of the world's land by 2030, then 50% of the world's land by 2050 on top of all of the protected land that currently exists. And we have to be very careful with words here because when I say protecting, we like to think of taking care of, looking after. That's not what I mean at all. When I say protecting, I'm talking about in the legal sense because when they protect lands legally, it excludes us from using it for productive things such as taking resources, growing food. And then it gets way, way worse because what they're going to do with these natural asset classes is list them on the stock exchange. So you will literally have national parks, mountain ranges, rivers, and of course the farmland too, because they see this as a four quadrillion dollar market. Yes, that's four quadrillion with a massive Q, which is an insane amount of money. So they believe if they can get back all of the farmland, they can throw this into the natural asset class system too. And that's why they're coming for the farmers right now. Now this is all being done under terms like biodiversity and sustainability, but ultimately this is a giant land grab. And if they succeed in this, it will also then open the door for them to legally start charging us for things like fresh air and clean water. That is where this will take us. So this is a key part of the agenda to take us to smart cities and to take us to serfdom, but it's flying under the radar for a lot of people. So that is why tonight's show is extremely important. Before we go, just one final shout out. I do have group coaching beginning next week. This is group coaching for investors about how we protect our property rights and our assets going into the greatest wealth transfer in human history. 
Also, I'll be sharing what opportunities are out there, and then we will continue to go on forward working together to protect our wealth and grow it in these crazy, crazy times. So if you're interested, this is the final shout out for that. It begins next week. Just hit me up at parallelmightpodcast at protonmail.com. In closing, I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And like always, I'll see each and every one of you in the next one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Parallel Might Podcast. We are joined today by Courtney Turner, who is an independent researcher and host of the Courtney Turner Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about an extremely important subject that is very close to my heart as a farmer. And the topic is natural asset classes. And it sounds very boring, but it's extremely deep as a topic. So we're going to talk about what they are, how they're going to be used to turn nature into a new form of asset class that will essentially and ultimately destroy our ability to use our land And it may even lead to them charging us for things that nature does, like provide us with fresh air. And then we'll talk in part two about how this ties into the many other agendas in play. I've been really looking forward to this one, Courtney. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you and where can listeners find you if they want to catch up on your work? Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for addressing this topic. I concur. It's quite important. Um, I was actually invited to speak at my uh, state capital on this subject and uh, the it really my uh, my goal was to try and get uh, put enough people to submit comments to push against the SEC so that they would withdraw the proposal which did happen even before I went to speak so uh, kudos to people who took action that's really really encouraging but I still went to speak because I don't believe that they're going to just roll over and be like oh, okay moving on because they think they have four quadrillion dollars on the table and if I had four quadrillion dollars on the table i'm not so sure how easy it would be to just uh let that go so um so yeah so thank you so much for uh having me on and for addressing this and people can find me at courtneyturner.com i spell my name a little bit differently it's like courtenay so it's c-o-u-r-t-e-n-a-y turner t-u-r-n-e-r.com and you can find all of my work there, all the ways to support me there, uh, my links to the different uh, podcast platforms, as well as my different social media. I'm pretty much Courtney Turner uh, on most social media, except for Instagram. I'm at Kinetic Courts, and that's uh, I post more of my fitness stuff there because the podcast material was getting so shadow banned and censored. It was getting kind of silly to even continue. So, so it's uh, more of the fitness site, but yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Courtney. No, I really appreciate it. And the work you've been doing on this is fantastic. I've been following it for about two years. And then I had a time for the past six months, I'd say six to 12 months, where I was looking specifically at something else, which we'll talk about, which is the great taking. And these two things really do go hand in hand, as we'll get into later. That four quadrillion number is key because there is four quadrillion in derivatives at the top of the financial system. And they're going to use the mechanism to try and take back all the collateral. Now, if they can get all of the land into that system, then they will take all of the land with it. And I think that's what this is about, or at least a part of it. But first, let's just dig into what natural asset companies or natural asset classes are. Can you tell listeners uh, where did they come from, Courtney, and what did they actually entail? So uh, it does have a very long history, and uh, I, I would argue that a lot of this starts with uh, natural capital accounting, and uh, this goes all the way back to I, I think Schumacher wrote a book called "Small Is Beautiful," and he was in 1973, and he was one of the earlier. Uh, kind of forerunners of this type of accounting system where we commodify and and uh, you know measure uh, in a uh, terms of monetary value. 
natural resources, things like air, water, uh, land, uh, minerals, and now they're including things like photosynthesis. <laughs> um, so these are they're looking for ways to monetize these natural um, natural assets, essentially natural resources that exist already in the air that I don't believe should be uh, commodified by anyone. I don't think anyone should have ownership of them, in my personal belief. Um, but however, that that's it. So it's been a pretty long and, you know, early 60s, there was this whole uh, bio, you know, this uh, kind of green agenda that was kind of starting to brew with a lot of this talk about biodiversity and conservation. So they start, you know, they're masters, Fabrian socialism, masters of incrementalism. So they kind of, you know, took very small, gradual steps towards what we are seeing now. Uh, you know, now I think it's really ramping up because so much of the groundwork has already been laid before us. Um, but, you know, things like in this country, uh, the United States, that people, I, I talk a lot about the Hegelian dialectic, and I think people typically think, oh, well, if the conservative, if they align as a right winger or a conservative, if the, if the Republicans did it, then it's good, you know, and if the Democrats did it, then it's bad, and vice versa, you know, you get a lot of this, but, you know, really, it, it's kind of a uniparty, and they work together, and there is, I believe, a larger, more uh, worldwide kind of a agenda that's being put forth. That's not to say that it's a one uh, entity kind of governing body, although I think we do see some kind of key outfits, you know, if you will, some NGOs that are certainly uh, vying for power and very vocal, but I think it's much more complicated and much more intricate than that. However, there are, as a, you know, a saying, there are some, like now we're seeing the World Economic Forum, but certainly the UN has been very hard at work on this agenda for a very long time. And uh, there, so it's things like conservation, uh, you know, the Conservation Act in, of 1980 that was actually put forth under the Republicans. And I think that was a huge part of laying the groundwork for what we're seeing now because conservation easements are a huge part of these natural asset companies. So what are natural asset companies? Oh, oh one more thing. I'll back up. Back in 2012, and I think this was really, really a huge uh integral advancement in this movement. Back in 2012, the UN created a white paper document and it was called FEEA, Ecosystem Accounting, and it stands for Systems of Environmental Economic Accounting, Ecosystem Accounting. It's just like voodoo accounting made up nonsense, <laughs> uh, you know, terms of economic uh, accounting principles. It does not subscribe to traditional, you know, general account applied accounting principles. Um, and I have a funny story about that, actually, I'll do a little tangent, but when I went to go look up, you know, when you hover over uh, something and Wikipedia pops up, uh, so I hovered over GAP because it wasn't spelled out. And I was like, okay, what are these generally accepted accounting uh, principles? Typically, you know, what, how, how is this different? And I hovered over it and what came up was GAP the demon. And this is really kind of funny because uh, this gap demon is a demon that um, it comes to women and helps them find a, it's a medical demon, helps them find partners, and then it renders them infertile. And I think that that is kind of interesting because I'm not saying this was intentional, uh, but it is kind of what they're doing with the land, right? They're making it very enticing to financial partners. However, they're rendering it infer infertile because it's part of this degrowth agenda. So, you know, they have so many names for it, the low yield, the no yield, but essentially it is where they're, they're being incentivized not to produce on the land under this umbrella of what they call ecosystem management. 
Oh, it's, it's sorry to interrupt Courtney, but that's totally intentional. You know, when I was researching the great taking the company that they put all of the assets with that now have ownership rights over the assets is called seed and co. And the literal dictionary definition of seed is to involuntary give up your rights to somebody else. Uh, so I don't think it's a coincidence. And uh, sorry for interrupting, I'll hand it back. <laughs> no, I, I I think it's at least worth pointing out for sure. <laughs> so, I, but I thought that was very funny. So yeah, so then back in 2012, they had adopted this uh, UN uh, form of accounting for that applies to uh, natural assets and 90 countries had signed on to NASCs at that time, natural asset companies. And then it was in the United States last year, it was January of 2023, the Biden administration adopted their version of this uh, SEEA ecosystem accounting. They call it something different. Uh, it's such a long name. I really need to just memorize it. But it's National Strategy to Develop Statistics for Environmental Economic Decisions, a U.S. system of natural capital accounting and associated environmental economic statistics. Office of Science and Technology Policy, Office of Management and Budget Department of Commerce is where it came from. And that was January 2023. So the the United States has now signed on. They have their own version. It is the same just, you know, nonsense accounting that is applied to uh, natural resources. And while the SEC did withdraw the proposal, uh, so again, to give a little backstory, what happened was there was a, a, a organization that was developed. It was called the IEG. It's the Intrinsic Exchange Group. And they partnered with the New York Stock Exchange so the New York Stock Exchange was double dipping here. Um, and they had their mission was to propose a rule uh, for the SEC, where the SEC would propose a rule to put natural asset companies now on the New York Stock Exchange, which now makes them a public commodity. This is very, very concerning. And I know many parts of the world, as uh, we were discussing before uh, we began, you know, this is already in operation in Poland. And as I mentioned, by 2012, 90 countries have already signed on with natural asset companies. Uh, so I think it is really uh, instrumental and, uh, you know, incumbent upon Americans to push back, particularly locally, uh, because I think we need to make sure that this does not go through here. And of course, just because the SEC withdrew their proposal does not mean that they're going to uh, let up. I think that that is a victory. It's a win because it means that they actually did feel pushback, enough pushback not to just ram it through. Uh, but I think we still need to be really vigilant. And hopefully that will set a precedent, uh, possibly for other parts of the world. But this is part of, so the Biden administration in uh, six days after he got into office, he put forth, uh, you know, something called the 30 by 30 agenda, which is part of this, uh, he renamed it to America the Beautiful because that, there was a lot of pushback because they know it's part of this uh, UN agenda where uh it's called uh, the, uh, you know, under 2030 agenda. Um, but it was actually, I think, put forth, I'm trying to think what year, but this goes a, a really far back. Um, you know, there was, uh, I think, uh, an Earth Summit back in 1992, and Nancy Pelosi had presented a bill very similar to this 30 by 30 agenda. But in any case, what it is, is this idea uh, that uh, by 2030, 30% of the Earth's land and water 
cannot be uh, used for human production and cannot be inhabited by humans. And this is, of course, just a stepping stone to what's called the Half-Earth Agenda, which was a book written by E.O. Wilson, a biologist. And that is, of course, just as it sounds, it's this agenda that by 2050, only half of the Earth uh, can be uh, inhabited or used uh, by human and and yield any kind of production. So this is very, very concerning. Um, so this, uh, the SEC did withdraw their proposal, but what it was was to put this new class of uh, companies up on the New York Stock Exchange where they would be able to commodify things like the air, the water, uh, the land, uh, minerals, and a lot of it's being done. It's not just being done through conservation easements, but that is a huge part of how they can usurp private land, which is very concerning because somebody could have a conservation easement on their land and really not even know it. It could be, let's say it's in a land trust that you inherited from your great grandparents. And at the time they had enrolled in a conservation easement and it maybe they thought it was beneficial to their purposes at the time. However, now you realize that there is a oil on that land and it happens to be, uh, you know, encompassed in part of the region that is already in this conservation easement. Now let's say Saudi Arabia, who is very oil rich and they do not want us drilling uh, because that is competition, they invest in a knack that happens to be located uh, where your conservation easement is. They could tell you under this ecosystem management services that are provided with the NAC, they could tell you that you cannot drill on your land because it violates the ecosystem management rights. However, what they can do is they can start drilling because they have uh, controlling rights. They may not own your land, but they have controlling rights of the land. And they could start drilling, and yes, that would dequalify them on the NAC, so it becomes delisted. But now, since they already have the controlling uh, management rights, they can continue to keep drilling. So this is just an example, but why it's incredibly concerning, and people should really be uh, pushing back on this. But of course, since they're looking to commodify these resources, you know, there's so many other ways that this will. It's like the uh, federal. Uh, national parks and the, uh, you know, various uh, under the guise of conservation, uh, these things could all be put under the NACs. And so, yeah, so they did withdraw. But I think now where we really need to push back is on, uh, at least here, I think we need to push back on these, uh, this natural capital accounting, you know, and as I mentioned, it was, uh, you know, a, one of the earliest books was 1973, Schumacher, it was called Small is Beautiful. Uh, but there are several others. Dieter Helm was a, in 2016, wrote another book on uh, natural capital accounting. I forgot the exact title of it, but that's essentially what it was. So this movement is, you know, has been rolling out for quite some time. Biodiversity is another buzzword. And they had a whole biodiversity treaty. I think the U.S. did not enter it. Uh, that did get shut down here. Uh, but of course, uh, it does still apply in many other parts of the world. And I, again, I don't think they're going to roll over on that. They're still pushing this whole biodiversity uh, agenda. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I covered a lot, but I'm, there's a lot more. So I'll, I'll pause for a minute. <laughs> okay, let, let's pick it apart a little bit. So, so the first thing that I wanted to mention is congratulations on that pushback over there, because Europe has been involved in this kind of thing for a long time. And they came for the farmers immediately in Europe through the common agricultural policy or the cap as we call it where they essentially said to farmers we'll give you subsidies and grants if you farm in a certain way and it started out really 
really simple actually it was like use these kind of seeds instead of those kind of seeds then it was use this kind of fertilizer instead of that kind of fertilizer and farmers are really stretched so of course if they can get an extra two five ten percent each year from taking the grants they do it but over time it became engineered so that it was all about biodiversity sustainability agenda 20 agenda 2030 now and then agenda 2050 and it's at the point now where it's so vast that most farmers, I would say 95 to 99% of farmers are taking the subsidies and they're instructed on everything, how you can plant, when you can plant, what type of seeds, what kind of crops. They're told that they have to plant trees, hedgerows, dig ditches. They have to leave certain pieces of land fallow each year. So every year they might say to you, right, 20% of your land cannot be farmed, 30%. And to give you an example of my neighbor, he plants only organic because he gets extra money for it. So fair enough, organic sounds great, but he also has to do many other things. So each year, for example, somebody will come to his land and they will spend the day testing. They'll test his seeds at different areas to make sure he's doing it. And he he's essentially given up property rights over the land because the moment you take any of these grants or subsidies, you sign away the rights so that they can come at any point without your permission or with it over the next six years. So you have essentially put almost a kind of easement on your land. The other thing that they've started to do, and this was a really big one, was they got farmers to plant trees. And then after five years, it literally converted the land class from agricultural to forestry. Now, the forestry is completely different to agricultural. Once it's gone to forestry, you can't farm it and it gets put in a giant national trust. So even if you think you're on the forested land, it gives you far less rights than it does the agricultural land. So they would plant the trees, but then after five years, it literally wipes out the agricultural part of it and you can't plant on it at all. And what I see now is when I'm looking at land across Poland, you'll see certain land that it's going really cheap and you think, oh, wow, super bargain. Let's have a look at it. And then you find out in the small print, it's got one of these easements on it. That means it can no longer be farmed in like two years time. So the farmers are selling it just before their grants run out right. because they know after that it's game over. So yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. Over here in Europe, we're much more developed on this path. It's not called natural asset, natural asset classes. It's done under the common agricultural policy. But through that policy, they've essentially got farmers to convert their land into future NACs. And I think that's what's going to happen in the next decade. A lot of these farmers won't be able to farm the land, so they'll just sell it off. And then you'll get all of these big corporations swooping in to buy it. Um, but just to rewind yeah. a little bit, Connie, let's take it back just for listeners yeah. who maybe missed some of it. Essentially, what it's doing is the natural habitats, national parks, farmland, they're doing a kind of inversion on this one because they're trying to put a price on things that shouldn't have a price put on it, like air, water, photosynthesis, carbon sequestration, pollination. And then they want to thrust it into the financial market, which is what you guys have pushed back against on the New York Stock Exchange. But there is no way that's going to be the end of this one. Like you said, they think there's four quadrillion on the table. And once they get this one opened up, it will essentially allow nations like China, for example, or like you said, Saudi Arabia, to buy up your land, your national parks. And they can even then exclude Americans from it. They can say, you're not allowed on here because it's protected land. So no human access at all. So essentially, the, the totality of nature will be up for sale, won't it? Yes, that is exactly right. Um, and yeah, I, I think that we really need to push back on this uh on the natural capital accounting where they're valuing the land. That's, I think, really where they're doing it largely through what they call carbon pricing, but essentially carbon pricing are just 
carbon tax incentives, uh, carbon credits, carbon offsets. There are many names for it, but it's all kind of the same thing. And I think that's what we need to really push back against because then it mediates kind of all of the value that they're uh, putting on these resources. I think the other thing we really need to be uh, very cognizant of and start to push back on is that uh, back in 2022, the SEC uh, proposed that all farmers have to comply uh, with ESG reporting. And so you would think that the pushback would have come because that, that is a gross overreach of the SEC. It has no purview uh, there at all. But that's not actually why they pushed back. There were three categories. And the third one was this reporting uh, on the ESG. They had to you know, give it a specific uh, rating. And most farmers didn't have the infrastructure to do that. And so that's where the pushback came from. So, of course, what happened then? Five months later... Uh, the USDA, which is the United States Department of Agriculture, then announced that they're going to spend $3.1 billion in climate smart commodity projects. And they put things like $90 million into ADM. They put $40 million into Farm Journal. I can only, uh, you know, conjecture that that was for propaganda purposes because I don't know what else Farm Journal would have anything to do with climate smart commodity projects. However, this is, means that they are now able to track and uh, measure and surveil, of course, you know, all of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, on the farmlands. And so uh, they partnered with people like Trimble, uh, Comet Partners, and then there's this AgriCrop uh, app, which is essentially just this, uh, it's just a way now that they're going to be able to track all of your greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, once they track it, they can regulate it. And I think that is exactly the goal. And I think that really needs to be pushed back because when you're talking about what's happening in Europe, uh, you know, it's because they already have these tracking, surveilling uh, metrics and uh, modalities and policies in place. And so they're able to then regulate because they have a measurement and they have uh, metrics already uh, you know, installed. Whereas if you don't have that, it becomes kind of vague and it becomes really hard for them to implement it in practice. So I think that really needs to be pushed back against uh, immediately. And I think a lot of people don't even know that climate smart commodity projects are a thing and that they exist at all. So yeah. And for listeners who are not aware, the moment you put yourself onto any type of register, that's going to be weaponized against you in this coming agenda. We recently had a national heating system register so they wanted everyone under the threat of a fine if you didn't fill it out to tell the government what you had as a heating system so are you burning on wood do you have a heat exchanger do you have gas central heating and if you didn't send it back they threatened to fine you now what they are trying to do is to get the whole nation and this is across europe actually it's not just our country they're doing it in every country they want everyone to register what they're doing and then they're going to come down on you hard and say you need to upgrade your heating system now it's really interesting because my wife told me that they did this about 10 years ago in the country i'm in what they said to people was we'll give you a grant if you upgrade your heating system from the old wooden stoves, uh, wood stoves, should I say. And we've got one still, Courtney. It's huge. It's like a tank. It's like, it weighs about two ton. It's made out of these massive, massive bricks. It's really efficient. You can heat your house on it. You can cook on top of it whilst you're heating. We think it's brilliant. We live in a big old German house. Like the walls are about 60, about two foot thick. They're huge. And yet wow. they would say now that our house has a zero energy efficient efficiency rating because we've got that stove and because we don't have 
modern insulated walls, which are about 10 centimeters thick. Ours are about 60. The modern ones are about 10 with carcinogenic uh, insulation that they put into it. But that gets a really high score and ours gets a zero, which is wild because our house is so well insulated. Like we, we have minus 20 winters here and we just have our wood stove on. That's it. But what they did about 10 years ago was they gave grants to people, about 50, 60, 70% grants to poor people and said, if you upgrade your heating system to this new one that's environmentally friendly, then uh, we'll pay for most of it. So most people did, but it was under the proviso that you destroyed the old system, which was essentially your wood-burning stove where you could burn wood, which is in abundance here, or you could burn coal. So a lot of people did that. And then simultaneously, they were also writing in the legislation to get rid of those new stoves, the eco-groshic stoves, further down the line because they're not really environmentally friendly because it was wood pellets. Uh, these man artificial manufacturers ones where they was bringing in all of this stuff from America and Canada and kind of turning it into these pellets and you can only burn them. So they were telling people to go to it while simultaneously preparing to get rid of that in 10 years time, which is what they're doing now. They're saying that's no longer environmentally friendly. Now you have to get a heat pump. So this has been like a long-term agenda. And uh, right now, like I said, they're doing this national register. So it's not just going to be with the land. It's going to be with every single activity that we do, I oh, think. Yeah. you know, every single, every single thing that you do will be measured, traced, tracked, and then they're going to apply scores to it. So you have to be extremely careful putting yourself on a register. No, absolutely. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I do think that uh, that's absolutely right. I'm seeing something very similar happen with uh, education. So I've been to the state capitol twice in the past few weeks. And uh, the first time it was to present on the NACs to explain what they were, what the SEC was trying to do and why we still need to be vigilant and really uh, address this natural capital accounting uh, and of course the climate smart commodity projects because uh, I think they're going to keep moving forward and just rename it rebrand it uh, in a different way uh, but then the second time I went was uh, to push back against this idea of school choice and uh, I think it's very similar people might say how is this related but it's all about creating compliant obedient global citizens who are tracked surveilled monitored and regulated and uh, that's largely what the school choice agenda is all about you know it is a uh, it's a they're promulgating things like the social emotional learning the tech ed um, and really they're trying to target the private schoolers and the homeschoolers because they are the most independent and they are the least uh, monitored under the government system so I think you're absolutely right that this is not just about the land however the land is really really important because and the farming is really important because uh, you know it's really interesting you mentioned the organic farming with your neighbor and I got a lot of pushback because they talk about how they will only uh, allow for regenerative farming and yes we think organic farming is great but there's a lot of problems first of all most farmers cannot afford you know solely organic practices i encourage organic practices you know if you're able to uh use those if you're a farmer great please do if you're able to buy and purchase organic local uh, i absolutely encourage people to do so however on mass scale that can be very expensive uh especially because they've made because of the regulations and because of uh you know what they've done with these other alternatives that they they've made it harder with our soil and they've made it uh cheaper to buy essentially garbage and toxins <laughs> so a lot of farmers just can't do it but here's the other problem is that they have redefined what it actually means to be regenerative so traditionally we think of regenerative as being uh, even more 
holistic in practice than even just uh, the label organic. But now there's another category of regenerative, which means sustainable, which means, uh, you know, low carbon emission, which means, uh, you know, low yield, no yield, uh, all, all of these different names. But this is not what we tr traditionally think of as being organic, because it could be implying that they're using other types of technology, other types of, uh, you know, uh, practices that are that contribute to the uh, no yield or sustainability and, or could have offsets, right? It could have carbon offsets, which don't really make it organic at all. But I, I think that's important for people to understand that they do redefine things and what sounds good, it might just be clever marketing and not really, um, you know, good practices. Yeah, well, to give you an example, the people who are sustainably uh, farming where I live, they are doing things like this, Courtney. So there's a whole tract of land not far from where I am. And I've seen it throughout the region where they were paying people to plant trees, getting the grants for five years and then just chopping them all down. That, that's what they did. There's whole tracts of land where they got away with this. They got special grants because there's many of these grants floating around, right? Some of them turn your land over to forestry permanently. Some of them are grants that if you do certain practices from an approved list, you will get a special grant. Uh, and what he did was he grew all of the trees, got the grant for five years, and then just chopped them down. And that was supposed to be environmentally friendly. It's it's a racket. Uh, and that is a small scale glimpse into what the global racket would be. It would all be a racket. It's certainly not about protecting nature. It's about actually increasing financial collateralization of nature. And I've got a quote here from the former Bank of England Governor, Matt Carney. He said, why do markets rate Amazon as one of the world's most valuable companies, but the value of the vast region of the Amazon appears on no ledger until it is stripped of its foliage and converted into farmland. And that's essentially what you're talking about with this new form of accounting. They want all land in a global asset registry and on ledgers so it can be traded between oligarchs, essentially. And recently, the New York Stock Exchange was about to list it, but you guys pushed back. And uh, congrats on going to Capitol Hill. I bet that was crazy. Uh, you know, that was interesting. The uh, uh, For the first experience, I was invited by a, a senator. And I really didn't know what I was going to be doing because I had never done anything like that before. And But he introduced me. So when he introduced me, I realized I was actually there to do a presentation. Of course, I got so nervous that I had, it on, I had the notes on my phone and I shook it and I deleted the entire thing. So I had to do it all from memory because um, <laughs> I was so nervous. Um, but, you know, I was there presenting and they a lot of them really weren't very familiar with the topic. So uh, it was a pretty congenial type of environment. When I went to talk about school choice, that was a very different experience. It was not a presentation. I wasn't presenting. This, this one I had been presenting before the Agricultural Committee. So I really talked a lot about the uh, conservation easement. There was a, a, a bill that they put forth. They renamed it to agricultural easements, uh, to I think, to derail people. But I so I talked about that and why we need to push back, back in that. I really did tailor it to the agriculture. As you said, it's much broader than just farming. Uh, I think the problems with uh, all of what they're putting forth. But when I went to talk about school choice, it was individual meetings and uh, they it was much less uh, receptive. They were, you know, they really pushed back a lot. They had this attitude of, uh, you know, we're Republicans, so we're the good guys. 
And, you know, I, I try to politely explain to them, I don't really care whether there's an R or a D, you know, if they're limiting our uh, rights, they're limiting parental rights, they're limiting freedoms, they're uh, increasing uh, tax spending, <laughs> uh, then I am not in favor. And, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter to me whether it's coming from an R or D, that the, these things are not things I support. So that was very interesting. Um, but yeah, with the... With the NACs and uh, the uh, Intrinsic Exchange Group, you talk about like who is it, who is behind it. The Intrinsic Exchange Group was their funding came from the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, the IBD, IBD Labs, Abadir Ventures, who is a venture firm, but they specialize largely in technology uh, investments. Uh, uh, sorry, medical technology mostly. And I thought that was interesting. I think that's actually quite relevant. Uh, and then it was also entertaining ideas, which I, it seems to be some sort of a venture firm, but I don't really know uh, much about them. I couldn't find any information. So, but some of the subgroups were uh, people like the World Wildlife Organization, which of course is the brainchild of Julian Huxley, who is a uh, well-known eugenicist, one of the forerunners of UNESCO, uh, also the man to coin the term transhumanism in 1957. Again, I don't think that's irrelevant, uh, although I know Max Moore is, uh, you know, vying for that title, the the originator of the, <laughs> the term transhumanism. But, I, you know, we definitely know that Julian Huxley was pretty famous for saying it. So, yeah, I that I think that it is these people, these big banking institutions. There was an interesting speech by uh, Douglas Eggers, who is one of the CEOs. He's CEO of the Intrinsic Exchange Group. And he was talking about how with these types of things, it's really hard to get financial support because people don't understand. You just have to you have to see the vision and you have to know that you're just going to keep putting money in and keep putting money in. And he said, but he, they were so fortunate because the Rockefellers really understand this type of philanthropy. And uh, it, it reminded me. Yeah, of course they do. It, it reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, what was it? Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, um, which I feel like was kind of the uh, forerunner to today's uh, effective altruism. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. And, and the World Bank, like we mentioned in the introduction, they claim it's going to be a four quadrillion dollar market, which is just an insane number. Uh, I mean, essentially, they're saying it's worth infinite amounts of dollar. But it nearly knocked me off my chair when I read that, because for years I've been telling people about the two to four quadrillions in derivatives. And the Bank of International Settlements always said, oh, it's about 600 billion. And I used to say, no, it's about four quadrillion. And it was only about six months ago, eight months ago, when that number, that figure actually started to be discussed. It was on a really big financial channel. And then all of a sudden they said, oh, we've revised it and it's around two quadrillion. And I was like, I knew it, I told you. Uh, and I'd been saying it for so long. So when I saw this number, I thought, well, what they've done with the financial system at present is take all of our pension funds, our stocks, our bonds, mortgaged houses, mortgaged farmland, mortgaged factories, our bank deposits, and they've created a legal certainty so that if there is a financial collapse, all of those assets immediately will get transferred to those same people you just mentioned, your JP Morgan's, your um, Bank of America's, the top 15, 20 banks. Now, they've done that over the last 50 years. And it's so interesting that all of this, like you said, begins around 1970, because that was exactly when they started implementing that mechanism. And it took them about 50 years to get to this point. Now, the only thing that's not included 
in that whole basket of goods is first and foremost the stuff that you own outright. So let's say you own some silver or some gold. Great. That's out the system. There's no counterparty. But the other thing is the national parks and any land that's in private hands. Now, if your land's owned privately, debt-free, okay, they can't take it as part of that first wave. But if they can get farmers to voluntarily put their land into a system through easements, or they can just create these asset classes, like you said, and get governments and nations to put up their natural assets, which would be all of the private well, it's not private land, it's public land, it's commons. But if they can get them all to put that up to the natural asset class, then all of that can be put up to backstop that system. And therefore, they can take the whole world in one foul swoop at some point once once this system comes down. And and uh, that's my big worry is that is exactly what they're planning to do. Now, even if they didn't do that, it still screws us because I take it that once they do this, Courtney, we won't be allowed access to these places. They're going to say it's private and nature nature needs time to heal. So you guys better just move along and go back to your smart cities. Well, they're saying that. They they are saying that. That's the half-Earth agenda or the 30 by 30 agenda. Those regions, they're saying, will not be, they cannot be touched by humans. So because they, they, they have to be conserved, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, I think that's exactly their agenda. And uh, it's very interesting when you talk about how uh, they're, you know, commodifying it and they're using uh, in that number with the derivatives. I mean, they're already saying it here that they put it on the balance sheet. So I think they're trying to leverage the debt using these natural assets uh, and, and by commodifying them. Um, and uh, they're, I think it is really similar to derivatives because derivatives is part of what caused the, uh, the stock crash of 2008. And I think they are trying to create another, uh, you know, another crash of sorts. And I don't know, do you guys have uh, taxes? I'm going to sound so ignorant, but do you have taxes on land uh, ownership? Yeah, we do. We've got, yeah, we've got a range of different taxes and it's always based on the class of land. So the better the quality, the more tax you pay. Yeah. So I think that's a huge part of when you said uh, how if you own the land outright and you have no debt on it, you still have to pay taxes. And this is a huge uh, bone of contention with me personally. People push back with me on it because I I mean, taxes just I think it's I think it's theft. I think it is completely criminal uh, all across the board. And, you know, I think the IRS is completely unconstitutional. Um, however, the people push back on me because they say, well, our founding fathers were very clear that there needs to be property taxes. And, uh, you know, that may be the case. That may be true. However, it means you don't really own your land because what happens when you default on your property taxes, they can foreclose and then the government can seize your land, which means that really in practice, you don't own the land. You rent it from the government. If it, they can take it, if you don't pay your taxes, that means they own it and you're leasing that land. And that really, it drives me bonkers because people should have a right, if they pay to uh, purchase a piece of property, uh, they should have ownership of that property, not leasing. They should be owning that land. Uh, so that is something that, but what I do think is with what they're doing with the financial system, I think, and then the taxes, they could make the taxes either so high or uh, money so, uh, you know, invaluable that now people can't even pay their taxes, even those people who have ownership on the land. And that's a very concerning thought. And then they really will have access to everybody's property. Yeah, that's exactly what they did at the end of the Roman Empire. They outtaxed the landholders. So the people just walked away from the land. They just said, take it. And going back to what you said, 
You know, this goes back to the property right theft that happened when William the Bastard, as he's called, or William the Conqueror, you can choose, Courtney, which one you want. Uh, he came across <laughs> from France to Britain. And at the time, we had a lodial title, which meant that everyone owned absolutely their land. So no taxation upon the land. He came and he did the Doomsday Book, which was a land survey across England and Wales. And he registered every piece of land in the system. And then he created a legal construct where he or the crown was the only absolute owner of land and everyone else had a feudal tenure in land. And that is exactly what the Americans transferred over. But the first Americans, they got a low deal title. So there was land patents given out for the first people who went across there. My sister, she's a solicitor in property. That's what she does. Every year she handles numerous properties where the person who owned it dies and they have no heir. Now, what happens in that situation is it goes to King Charles. It goes to him. Now he owns the property because he's the legal owner to begin with. And then he can dispose of that property as he wishes. Now, for American listeners, you have to understand that if you want to truly own your land, you have to get a low deal title and you can't get it anymore from the government. But what you can do is try and engineer it. And there are ways to do that. And there's people who specialize in this, but it's a really complex thing. I'm sorry. What did you say it's called? a low deal title, but they're actually called land patents in the US. Oh yeah, land patents. Okay, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, and there are ways to get the land patent for your land in the US. I know people that have done it, but it's extremely complex because it requires you to essentially go all the way back to the original owner who would have had a land patent originally. And then you have to trace the lineage all the way to you. You have to send off some documents. You have to use some silver because you have to use legal money in the constitution, which is not Federal Reserve debt notes. But you can actually engineer it. And I know people who have done this and they are not paying taxes on their land. And it has been taken to court, but they can't touch it. They can't get them out of that land. Uh, but like I said, it's a long road to go down and I'm no expert in it. But I'm fascinated by it because ultimately, Courtney, this is what it goes back to is property rights. If you don't have property rights, you're a serf. That's that's it. You're a slave or a serf. That's exactly right. If you, uh, you know, either you own property or you become the property that is owned. And uh, that that is exactly, I think, the plan is to make us all slaves. And, I, you know, I think the agenda behind this whole, you know, it's a much larger overarching agenda. But I think part of what they're trying to do with the NACs was to push people into the cities. And, of course, they're creating all these smart cities where you will be completely controlled and monitored and surveilled. Um, and uh, and that we have lots of evidence for. There are lots of smart cities already in effect. Uh, they're increasing in number. And this is part of the UN 100 plan. Uh, they call it the UN 100. They imagine the centennial of the UN. So that would be 2045. And they're doing something in partnership with the Boston Global Forum. And they call it the book that Michael Dukakis, uh, the former governor of Massachusetts, it's called uh, Remaking the World, the Age of Global Enlightenment. And they talk about an AI world society. So the AI world society, they're uh, envisioning the hub will be in Ukraine. They've already done symposiums symposiums on this, where they talk about Ukraine uh, needs to be rebuilt. It's being decimated after the war. So we need to help rebuild it, send lots of resources and funding and support all of this to Ukraine, because they want it to be the hub, a centralized location for this AI world society that will be connected to all of these other uh, you know, smart cities, C40 cities, you know, call it what you will, but they're essentially these 15 minute cities that are geofenced. Uh, they're completely monitored, completely surveilled and tracked. And of course, uh, they will be able to control you because what you what they regulate, they can control. 
And, uh, uh, you know, when we then add on the things like, uh, you know, Neuralink and chips, and uh, we don't even need that. They already have a means of controlling you or even the central bank di digital currency, but they have means of controlling you just through cybernetics, which is already well underway because of uh, the incredible use of screen time and social media. So cybernetics is already really at play, um, but they're connecting you to all these other different various smart cities. And then I think that the rest of the land, you know, that is uh, uh, that is open, uh, I think that, that those will become kind of like forced labor camps. Uh, the, I think in part forced labor camps, I think in part at, because they will control and regulate whether you can farm, not farm, um, and what you can do. And then I think there's also, and this is just uh, my theory, and I, I know people, some people have thought it's kind of crazy, uh, but I do think they need some land to terraform because you think about all of these uh, synthetic transhuman leading to post-human goals that they have. And post-humanism is a real thing. It's a real movement. Uh, there are several handbooks on it. It's called, you know, the handbook on post-humanism. And I, I think in order to create this kind of a world where uh, we're merging with machines or potentially replaced by machines, think about how much energy that takes. They need to have huge factories for that. They need land. They need space to terraform. They need to create their lab-grown meat. They need, they're already creating fake salt. Bill Gates says it's fake salt that has no sodium in it. So uh, they want to dim the sun's rays. So they, there's a lot of uh, space required to do all of this, uh, the sea clouding. I mean, I can go on and on, but they need space for the terraforming. And I think that that's part of uh, the user. And of course, they want to mine the actual resources of nature uh, for themselves. Of course, I, I believe that that's part of it, not just to commodify it, but to use it. I mean, something's going to power these plants that are uh, used for the AI world society and for other terraforming and virtual reality space so wow that was one scary uh set of sentences <laughs> you just delivered uh there's so much i mean there's about 10 conversations we could have just in that bit alone but you know it's really interesting what you said about ukraine because not many people know about this but in 2019 when Zelensky first came to power he enacted sweeping land reforms that made it so that come 2024 which is where we are now all of a sudden all of the ukrainian farmland would be up for sale for international corporations, so long as they registered as a company or created a company in Ukraine. Now, before this point, it was all held by individuals. What year was that? 2019, just as it got into power. Uh, and up until that point, you could only buy land if you was a citizen of Ukraine and a registered farmer. Now, that made it extremely difficult for all of the global conglomerates to buy Ukrainian farmland, which, by the way, is the best farmland in the world. That's why Hitler wanted Ukraine as the breadbasket. It was considered the best soil in the world. And right. he enacted these sweeping reforms. They didn't come into play until this year, which is absolutely fascinating because just after that, he ended up at the WEF and he said, Ukraine's open for business. There's a famous speech. If you find it on YouTube, he said, Ukraine's open for business. Please invest in our country. Then the war began. Uh, and I'm guessing, Courtney, that a lot of that farmland has lost a lot of value now and it's going to be sold for pennies on the dollar because all of those farmers are displaced or they're terrified of farming because of the bombs dropping. That all goes online this year. Now, another really interesting thing happened in 2020, just before the war. Ukraine opened the Public Union for the Virtual Assets of Ukraine. Uh, and this was a governmental thing, also with a public-private partnership wrapped around it. And what they decided was they're going to turn Ukraine, just like you said, into this fourth industrial revolution center hub. And they said by 2024 again, another key date, 
which is this year, they wanted 60% of all Ukrainians using digital assets. Now, it just so happens that a key part of Ukrainians getting funds during the war was to open up digital wallets. But it's way, way bigger than that. They want all property turning into tokenized assets. So that would take a physical asset and tokenize it, which means that overnight you could have that asset traded a thousand times without you even knowing it. If you've got a mortgage on your house, you might wake up and it's been traded to a Chinese hedge fund and then back to the US or Singapore. They also want digital records of land ownership, title tokens, uh, smart contracts with peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So Ukraine is implementing all of this whilst it's, we're, we're told, Courtney, they're, at an, they're in an existential war and yet they're using it in the background as the opportunity to transform the economy. Now, I don't know about you, but I know my history from World War One, World War Two. It wasn't really a time where people messed around with their economies. You know, you're meant to be defending your country. So I'm a little bit suspicious of it all, is I guess what I'm saying. I am very suspicious of all of it. Um, I, I'm so sorry, if I could ask you to repeat, you said that in 2019, Zelensky had announced that in 2024, uh, what would happen with the land? Yeah, so he did a moratorium or moratorium, should I say, mm. on, on the land. So he said that beginning in 2024, outside entities, so international entities, would be able to buy up Ukrainian farmland. Before this, uh, and this goes back to the Soviet times, they made it so that only local people or citizens of Ukraine could have that farmland. So if you was a registered farmer, that's fine. You could buy other pieces of farm, but nobody outside the country could come in and buy that farmland. And that was to protect the rights of Ukrainian citizens, of sure, course. Of course. Uh, and then, of course, you've had this war, a lot of people displaced, a lot of that farmland's just sat there, or maybe it's covered in mortar or god knows what and that's all going to get sold now to these big international corporations and it begins this year i'm not sure when the date is but if you google it if listeners just google it moratorium ukrainian farmland you'll find out that was his first gift to the elites uh was giving up that farmland and that's probably why you know that's why he's got these houses in malibu courtney's because he's selling the country off to the oligarchs I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, that's such an interesting point about the breadbasket of Ukraine. A lot of people ask why, why Ukraine? Why are they making that the hub? Why, why is that so, you know, the center? And people have a lot of theories about, you know, I keep hearing the theories about the Khazarian mafia. I did a long deep dive on that. And I, I actually think there's very little evidence for it, historically speaking. Um, that's not to say that there aren't bloodlines and that there aren't, uh, you know, I think the oligarchs do like to keep it in the family. And I think they do that. You know, in part, it is through the bloodlines, and I think it's in part uh, through uh, ritualist initi initiation. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes it's both, but that, that's my personal theory on that. We can get into that, you know, if you want to talk more about what's going on the, the day, if you will. Um, but I think, actually, it has more to do with, uh, or at least largely to do with, maybe I shouldn't say more, but I think it has largely to do with the soil, as you mentioned. It's valuable land. It's a very, uh, you know, it's arable land. It has a lot of value just intrinsically. And that's part of why there was the breadbasket in Ukraine. Of course, there was, uh, you know, the farmers, the kulaks, who were hardworking industrial people who were willing to tend to that land. But I think it's very similar to what's going on with the NACs in the United States. Part of the reason they're coming so hard after the U.S., who has pushed back for so long, um, I think is because we do have very uh, rich uh, natural assets, uh, natural resources in this country. There's tons of mineral rich uh, soil in this country. Um, there's a, you know, just the, the, the variety of topography here, um, I think is very rich. And so I think that is part of why they're really uh, trying to get us on board with these NACs.
or what they'll rename it as something else, but you know, it's all the same. They're really coming after the natural resources here. So for sure, it's all based on natural resources. And you know, this goes back to another thing that I think listeners could maybe reflect on and ponder on as I do. And that's that if you look at the US, the US has got a huge commodity profile, but Russia has about three, four times that. Now, if they're going to go to a system where we value nature and Russia's got about four times the amount of, let's call it a natural assets than than the US, what does that mean for a future uh, global system? Now, we know that there's kind of this oligarchy at the top, but if the oligarchies in the U who, are, who prefer the US don't want, then maybe they don't want it in Russia. And Russia's commodity profile is complete, meaning that they've got all of them. You know, yeah, there's nothing really missing there. They've got, yeah, the oil, the minerals. Yeah. And they just have so much more space too. I mean, Russia is huge. I mean, parts of Russia is the West, parts of it's the East, right? They're, I mean, it's huge. It's I think it's got like 12 time zones or 11 times, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, it literally spans from from China to uh, to Europe, you know, all the way to to, to Western Europe. Uh, sorry, Eastern Europe. Uh, so again, that feeds into this too. You know, what are these wars about? Is it about what they tell you, or is it about the fact that it's countries trying to position themselves for this future? Oligarchs trying to position their little team or their little club for the new system, and it, it goes to the BRICS currency too. When the BRICS. Yes. Uh, which I believe are just, I believe that's all narrative and spin, but let's just go with the idea there was going to be two blocks. And that's how I think they're going to take us to two blocks, Courtney, and two becomes one eventually. It's like that's dialectic. Song. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, Brzezinski wrote about this, they, these grand architects of geopolitical chess, essentially, Brzezinski and Kissinger, uh, Jacques Attali, you know, all of these people wrote about it. They talked about how, I, I mean, even the, what's his name, uh, Rockefeller talked about it, how they were going to uh, pit these two competing structures, the Eastern and the Western blocks against each other. And, and of course, they create these names like the communists and the, the capitalists. Um, but of course, we don't really have uh, in full effect. It's a, you know, I, I wrote, I did a tweet not too long ago saying that we think of uh, these names as being philosophical, ideological constructs. And I don't want to undermine or, you know, negate the fact that there are actual philosophies uh, at the root. Um, however, I think in practice and modern day application, what we really see, and I, not even that modern, uh, but what we really see is target audiences for marketing. That's really what's, you know, how it's uh, been applied. Uh, and it's a more applicable uh, understanding of how they work. But I do think they, they've written about how they're going you know, to have the East competing against the West. And ultimately, it's so they can have the emergence of a technocratic takeover. And what do we see with the AI world society, you know, and with the central bank digital currency? Uh, so I think that that is that's absolutely right. And that I think people really need to keep that in mind. I don't know if you saw uh, the Tucker Putin interview. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. I watched it um, probably foolishly because I knew what I'd find if I did watch it. But there was a few little interesting points that I picked up on it, but not maybe what the listeners expected. Yeah. So I think that people need to really keep that in mind. I don't think a lot of people were. I, I'm with you. I wasn't initially intending to watch and uh, I did. Uh, because I, I do a, shock, a show with Dr. Lee Merritt. We call it The Dangerous Dames, and she wanted to discuss it. And I'm really glad that she did suggest that because I, I think it was very illuminating for me and not in the way that I had anticipated it being, you know. But I still maintain that there was a very large degree of psyoping going on in that interview, um, but not in the way that I may have uh, uh, gone in. Not my, pre my previous bi bias was actually kind of, uh, you know, shifted a bit. 
And I, I think that people do need to understand that we have been fed these narratives in different parts of the world, uh, but certainly here in the West, and I would say really the West, it's not just America. Uh, the West has been fed this, uh, I call it the CIA goggles that we uh, look through things. And that it's because the media has portrayed one, uh, you know, it, one kind of version of what America is to the world. And then, of course, the the East has their own perception. And then there's, of course, the reality. I certainly don't claim to be any authority on what the reality actually is, because there's so many details that have been withheld from us. And uh, even if I was a, a consummate scholar on the subject, which I'm not, uh, I you know fully admit that. But even if I was, there's so much that we don't have ways of fully knowing or fully comprehending, because there, there are all all of these narrative wars going on in the background or in the forefront, actually. Um, but I, I thought it was very interesting just to look at how, what uh, Putin was presenting. And, in, you know, certainly there was a lot of truth there, but the truth can be weaponized. And, uh, you know, in true KGB fashion, uh, demoralization of the West is a huge agenda, right? That is part of their uh, means of usurping usurping power and uh, for color revolutions. And I think that for most Americans who are not aware of the geopolitical history and how America has in many ways, which Woody pointed out, hurt themselves. Now, I don't mean the American people, but certainly uh, our government that we have trusted, especially under the name of defense. It used to be called war, but then they put the D in front of everything. So they get a black ops carte blanche budget to do as they wish. And oftentimes that gets weaponized against who? Us, the people. And I, I think we see through that interview, and anybody who has studied the history already knew this, but I, I think through that you see how America has been responsible in large part for, or again, not the people, but you know the governments and the military apparatus, the five eyes, it's not just America, uh, but they're largely responsible for putting us in a very weakened position uh, and of course an unfavorable position to the rest of the world. But the thing that Putin pointed out is that uh, the way West might fear a very strong Russia. And, you know, Russia certainly is not, I think it's much more formidable uh, than we've been told. However, I don't think it's the superpower. But when you look at just the sheer mass that it has and the wealth of natural resources, when those become a, uh, you know, when those become a limited resource and a commodified and regulated resource, what happens when you have a, a nation that has a control over their own natural resources that are very copious and in many ways far more copious than and abundant than other parts of the world. And do I think that there's an oligarchical structure uh, where and Russia is involved? I absolutely do. But in many ways, Russia has actually opted out of you know the that system. I, I think they play ball with it. But I'm not sure. So this is why I think it's a huge mistake. Personally, this is my opinion. I think it's a huge mistake for people to perceive, uh, especially in uh, the United States or in the West, to perceive Putin. I think they've made this dialectic again where, you know, he's either the enemy or he's our he's the hero. And I, I actually think neither is true. Now, if you're Russian, you may argue that I, I even as an American, I think there's culturally or some things he's doing that are great. Um, but I don't think he's our ally. And I think he's really vying for uh, the, uh, you know, the success of Russia. And that is something to really consider when you think about the, the, the land and the, uh, just the scope of land and the scope of resources, which, which they have. So 
that's sorry. I didn't mean to go on for so long. There, there's a lot more there, but I'll pause. <laughs> no, that's fine. And I, I think we'll probably wrap it up for part one because it's uh, it's a huge subject and there's so many different threads to go down. And in part two, I'd love to talk a little bit about the United Nations and this kind of driving force behind all of this has to be the United Nations. It's their agendas. It's their sustainable development goals. And I guess that's where I'm looking at Russia and saying, well, you know, I always try and judge it on did they push the the magic injection? Are they implementing transhumanist ideology in their society? Central bank digital currencies, are they going there? Uh, and I see a lot of that in Russia. But then on the other hand, of course, like you said, there's the cultural differences. There's a more conservative culture. There's family values and pushing those things. And I always say to people, we can't judge people based on the good that they do and not taking these big agendas as well. We have to look at both sides of it because some of it's just, going to be narrative you know it has there has to be there has to be antagonism within the system there has to be an opposite and like you said with that Tucker Carlson interview it seemed to me and I totally think Tucker Carlson is a spook I think he's just like yep, his dad is a CIA <laughs> uh, and I think his his role there was to make Americans angry and look at Russia and say oh my god demoralization demoralization 100% and I think he did a good job of it but I certainly feel like he was working for American interest in that interview. And you could see a few times as well, like he didn't, he never once, for example, concared with Vladimir Putin when he spoke about how the Ukrainian war started. And I think, yeah, it was an interesting one to look at from a, if you if you looked at it from the perspective as this is the KJB versus the CIA, it actually makes a lot more sense then. That's kind of how I saw <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> that is I enjoyed how I it from it. that perspective. Um, and I did, I did, I did something for my patrons on that one. I did like a, a one hour breakdown and I found I actually had a lot more to talk about than I expected like you did, but let's, let's wrap this one up for part one for listeners that are leaving this episode here. I think it's extremely important to do some more research on that. Cause I'll certainly be talking more about them in the future. This is about land. This is about property rights, but it's also about the population. It's about survival because if you don't have land, you can't provide for your family. If you don't have land, you have zero self-sufficiency and independence. And then you are going to be 100% dependent on the same people who enacted COVID and the same people who enacted all these global agendas that have led to massive life loss. And I don't want to be dependent on them, Courtney. In fact, I think that's the worst situation we can be in. So thank you so much for sharing this information on Nax. Please keep us updated in the future. Come back on and tell us more as you find out more and we'll support your fight in America because Europe's already halfway done on this one. I'm going to do my best to keep my rights at least. And we never put our, any of our land into that system, but sadly most people will have. And I think it's all going to come crashing down at some point. Uh, where can listeners find you, Courtney? Is there a good place to, to find out more on this specific subject as well? Because I'm sure they'll want to come across and listen mm. to those specific episodes. Yes. And I will just have one last thing on that. You know, when you say about providing for your family, uh, they even said of their own words, they said that uh, the conservation, quote unquote, conservation of the land, uh, you know, those interests trump any human flourishing, which means that it's more important to conserve the land than it is to potentially provide resources for human, which, of course, would mean food, but not just food. I mean, we need energy for, you know, to heat things, to cool things, to, uh, you know, in cold places, it would be very easy to completely starve and freeze them out to death literally uh, so people really need to be mindful of that 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 is that uh, they've been pretty overt about that 
being an agenda. So to find me and find my work. And I, I think I've done now at least 12 shows on the t the subject. Uh, so I have that all on my channel. Uh, it's CourtneyTurner.com, C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And you can find all of the different podcast platforms. So, uh, you know, I have Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, all my audio platforms as well. I think I just done Pill.net as well. So they're a great community over there. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to leave it there for part one, everyone. This is an extremely important topic, one of the most important topics, because without land, we have nothing. That takes us very quickly to total serfdom, and I think that's what this is about. So please share this episode with anyone and everyone. I think it's very important that everyone is aware of what natural asset classes are and how they are quietly trying to sneak these under the door so they can get these things up and running. And in many places across the world, they are very close or have systems that are very similar to natural asset classes that will quickly turn into NACs. In the coming years, if we don't push back and if we don't alert farmers to what is happening, they need to know also, because it's their land, that these parasites are now desperate to take, along with all of the commons, along with all of our national parks, we must not let this happen. Now in part two, we take this one much further. We discuss the collateralization of the world. We discuss how the United Nations were granted trusteeship over 10 countries. Now, if you've been following my work on the legal system and how trusts have been enacted to try and take away our rights as living men and women, you'll understand that anytime you hear the word trust, you should be paying attention because they're trying to lock up all of these assets in trusts, including the land, so that you and I and our children and our grandchildren and all of our descendants are going to be permanently put into a synthetic world where we have our natural rights given to us by our creator accept, taken from us and replaced with human rights, which are a legal construct that they control and they can rewrite at any time, which is exactly what they're doing right now. So that's it for part one. Members, please head over to parallelmind.com to listen to the full episode. If you're not a member yet, please consider subscribing to listen to these full-length shows and support me as a content creator and my research. Also, if you'd like to reach out to me for a one-to-one -one wealth preservation consultation to help yourself and your family get up to speed to ensure that everything is ready going into what could be some very trying times, please reach out to me. Just go over to my website. There's a consultation tab. You can book in there or you can email me. In closing, hope you're all well, healthy and happy. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you all in the next one. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in. Is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence.
force within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace in our time. Peace in all time.